I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 44, The Right of Sodomy. And we're reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, volume 1, pages 82 to 98. I'm going to start first with a brief comment. For the last six or more episodes, I haven't included comments because there are only so many ways of saying that these priests, bishops, and cardinals are sick puppies. And after that, it gets redundant, repetitive, and old really fast, for me anyway. Just as Jesus had his say about the scribes and Pharisees, but didn't continue on and on with that, becoming redundant and repetitive too or wasting any more words on these guys. It does still need to be talked about, which is why I'm reading from the right of sodomy, to let her do it. But I can't come up with any more of or worse things to say about such people. And now for my reading from the right of sodomy. Under Venetian law, sodomy was defined as any sexual act between two males, including group, not individual masturbation, external interfemoral stimulation between the legs of a passive partner and anal penetration. As in Florence, the nature of most sodomy cases was decidedly pederastic. Ruggiero reported that the culpable partner in sodomy cases was generally the male adult. His passive adolescent partner was merely a submissive agent. Physicians were required to report to the public authorities all cases involving the rupture of the anal orifice of a minor boy due to an act of sodomy, said Ruggiero. And death at the stake was almost a virtual certainty for men convicted of the homosexual rape of a youth. Despite the severe penalties attached to sodomy convictions, however, Venice had a lively homosexual network similar to that of Florence that was part of the larger underground network of illicit activities in the city, but did not constitute a separate homosexual subculture. Ruggiero reported that there were certain locations in the city that were notorious for same-sex male assignations, liaisons. He also revealed that it was a common practice in sodomite circles to feminize male names, for example, changing Rolandino to Rolandina. As outlined by Ruggiero, the principal unit of the judiciary power in in Venice was the powerful Dici, or Council of Ten, the membership of which was drawn from the city's wealthiest patrician families. The ten, the ten delivered justice. More importantly, it delivered equal justice, which meant that it was not above sentencing nobles to death for capital crimes, including sodomy. Unlike Florence, sodomy was always viewed by the Venetian ruling class as a seriously willed crime, claimed Ruggiero. He reported that although the city had its own office of the night that was charged with policing public morals, including the prosecution of sodomites, the ten assumed jurisdiction in particularly grave cases, including incidents of sodomy on Venetian ships, incidents of sodomy that occurred in churches, and cases involving Jews and Christians, or members of the Venetian aristocracy, or high-ranking churchmen. 
One such case cited by Ruggiero involved a dual crime of sodomy and murder committed on sacred ground. A non-noble son of a city official was accused of the murder of a nobleman named Morosini at the monastery of San Zaccaria. The youth admitted the killing, but said he acted only in self-defense in an attempt to protect his virtue. Since the youth held to his story, even under torture, the ten released him despite pressures from the city's noble family to sentence him to death. The issue of clerical sodomy has long had long been a vexing one for the Council of Ten, and according to Ruggiero, the ten, according to Ruggiero, the ten, along with other Venetian law enforcement agencies, believed that the church was too lenient in its treatment of convicted clerical sodomites, and that it had a tendency to protect its own in such matters. The key question still being asked today was, is the cleric above the secular law in the commission of a crime involving a minor? It appeared to the ten that while laymen, including noblemen convicted of sodomy, received harsh punishment, clerics, even in cases that involved minors, often got away without punishment by church officials. Under these circumstances, said Ruggiero, the ten appealed to the Pope for help and received it. Sensitive to the continuous charge that the church was soft in its dealing with clerical sodomites, Ruggiero noted that the Pope also ordered all clerics to wear clerical attire robes and to be registered with the local bishop in order to be properly distinguished from non-clerics seeking special status to avoid secular punishment. And although the, and although death by burning uh, was ruled as unsuitable for a man of the cloth, more stringent penalties were constitute, instituted for clerics found guilty of the crime of sodomy, including the lifetime confinement of such clerics on a diet of bread and water, Ruggiero pointed out. Throughout the other kingdoms of Europe, the legal secular standards for the punishment of the crime of sodomy by the church and state remained essentially the same as that of the great city-states of Florence and Venice throughout the Renaissance period, sodomy and other Renaissance cultures. In Spain, the prosecution of sodomites was the joint task of both the Inquisition and the state. Penalties for laymen ranged from corporal punishment and exile to burning at the stake. Clerical sodomites were usually punished by defrocking and in some ways, in some cases, handed over to the secular authorities for execution after the confession and absolution of their sins. Feminist apologist Professor Mary Elizabeth Perry, in her essay, The Nefarious Sin in Early Modern Seville, reported that in late medieval Spain, where crimes against nature were closely linked to religious deviancy, death by fire was reserved for apostates, heretics, and sodomites. Perry stated that since Seville was located in the Kingdom of Aragon, the Inquisition under the direction of the Jesuit order retained jurisdiction over sodomy cases, whereas in Castile the crime was a matter for the secular authorities. Most of the cases that came before the Inquisition, Perry explained, involved the already familiar pederastic pattern of homosexual relations in late medieval Europe, that is, the sexual servicing of older men by young boys in their mid to late teens. 
In cases involving minors under the age of 17, the Jesuits, who were more interested in the salvation of souls than in the infliction of punitive measures, generally argued for leniency and the rehabilitation of youthful offenders, Perry noted. The Jesuits also maintained a prison ministry for adult sodomites who were held in separate cells in the royal prison in Seville. Perry claimed that in Seville, a center of Catholic piety with a very large number of churches and monasteries, the vice of sodomy was practiced by a significant number of religions, religious and the secular clergy. In some clerical cases, the priest or religious was charged with the solicitation of use for sexual purposes in the confessional, she reported. Penalties for this dual offense of sacrilege and sodomy ranged from uh, reclusion to a monastery where the convicted cleric was prohibited from hearing confessions and disciplined by his bishop or religious superior to execution by burning. The latter punishment was usually reserved for notorious clerical offenders or cases involving the sexual abuse of young children, said Perry. One such notorious case cited by Perry involved a religious by the name of Pasquale Jaime, who served as a as chaplain to the Duke of Al-Qaeda, caught in a compromising position with one of his dolled-up street urchins who were always in his company, Jaime admitted that his lifelong pederast passions to the Inquisition. He was convicted, defrocked, handed over to the secular authorities by his archbishop and publicly burned to the stake in front of the archbishop's palace. Later, his young accomplice, Francisco Legasteca, who had been awaiting trial in royal prison, was also found guilty of sodomy and, despite his young age, was also consigned to the flames as a warning to others who had been part of Yemi's pederast network, Perry noted, sodomy and Renaissance England. In comparison with his European counterparts, the Renaissance came relatively late to England, starting in the late 1400s and ebbed in the mid-1600s. It was a period of English history when religion was intimately tied to politics and the crime of sodomy viewed as a treasonable act by the crown. As documented by Alan Bray, author of Homosexuality in Renaissance England, in both Elizabethan and Jacobian England, the Protestant reformers propagated the view that the vice of sodomy was a foreign import introduced to the Isle by the Lombards and Papists, more specifically the Jesuit order. In popular literature of the period, the papacy itself was portrayed as a second Sodom and a city cistern full of sodomy, and the Jesuits as Rome's antichrist shock troops and the natural enemies of the state. From their pulpits, Protestant ministers condemned priestly celibacy as a cause of sexual deviancy in religious life, while upholding marriage for the clergy as a natural remedy for concupiscence and a bulwark against sexual debauchery. Scriptural references to God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as punishment for sodomy provided another popular theme for their sermons and was as was the connection of sodomy to heresy and witchcraft and sorcery. English Catholics, in turn, were wont to blame the unspeakable vice on the influx of Protestants from the continent. 
historian Cynthia B. Harrop recalled that the well-known English Benedictine monk, Father Augustine Baker, in the late 1500s, charged that sodomy was the greatest corruption in our land, and he warned the youth of Oxford and Cambridge to be alert to possible homosexual solicitation, a warning not without some basis in fact, for in 1541, Reverend Nicholas Udall, the headmaster of Aiton, was prosecuted by the Privy Council for alleged sexual transgressions, including buggery. A portrait of an English bugger. Like his continental counterpart, the English Renaissance man did not conceive of the sodomite or bugger, as he was popularly called, as a man with a different and distinct nature, but rather the general product of a lifetime of material luxury and sexual excesses of all kinds. The portrayal of sodomy as a vice to which the English gentry, more specifically the London gentry, were addicted, was a common theme in Elizabethan Brighton's writings and the theater, whereas common folk were portrayed as having more normal sexual desires, said Bray. In actuality, sodomy appeared to have permeated all levels of English society. The fact that it, it was a felony published, punishable by hanging and until death notwithstanding. In early Renaissance England, the two primary factors said to contribute to the spread of the vice were the historical pattern of late marriage and the social reality of crowded housing that forced non-family members, especially unmarried servants and apprentices, to share the same bed. Also at a time when bloodlines and inheritance laws were matters of grave political and social importance, the natural consequence of producing bastard sons from unions with females, prostitutes, or female servants could be eliminated altogether by taking one's pleasures with adolescent boys from the lower classes. The sexual libertine obviously did not need any excuse. As in Renaissance Florence and Venice, with the exception of mutual sex play between adolescent partners or groups of boys, sodomy was generally defined in pederastic terms, that is, as same-sex relations involving an active male adult and an active and a passive adolescent boy drawn from the poorer working class. Sometimes the dominant partner was a married man or father from the upper classes who managed to live out a secret or discreet life as a lover of boys. But as Bray noted, and in any case, neither party was under pressure to define themselves solely by their sexual acts. According to Bray, while there, was, while there is historical evidence that some of these pederastic relationships involved mutual affection and friendship, more often than not, the elements of material and financial enticements played the decisive role in the relationship. Also, he added, the element of con coercion, actual or potential, can be said to be a factor, especially in those sexual liaisons involving employers and their young apprentices, teachers and their underage pupils, or masters and their male servants or pages. All classes of English society had access to the services of boy prostitutes housed in tavern brothels that caused, catered to clientele seeking same-sex relations, said Bray. 
anti-sodomy laws not enforced, although the police records and court proceedings for sodomy trials during the Renaissance period in England are nowhere as complete and detailed as those of their Italian counterparts. They do provide some in, for information on the extent to which the vice was prosecuted and on the existence and operations of various urban networks or circles of sodomites. From the surviving official documents and other historical data, it appears that up until the mid-15, until the mid-1650s, law enforcement officials in major urban centers like London and in rural areas did not view sodomy as a special type of sexual offense that demanded exclusive attention or vigorous prosecution. Renaissance England did not have an equivalent to the office of the night nor was the Inquisition ever formally established as a major juridical force in England as it was on the continent. Sodomy cases that made it to the English court, said Bray, generally involved violence against minors, including homosexual rape, notorious incidents involving a grave breach of the social order, and those involving malicious intent that is, where the charge of sodomy was leveled against a prominent personage as a means of destroying his reputation and influence. But even in these cases, the successful prosecution of sodomites was uncommon. To understand the apparent discrepancy between the popular sentiments of the day that viewed sodomy as a grave offense against God and the crown and the general lack of enforcement of anti-sodomy statutes, it is necessary to briefly examine the language as well as the legislative intent of England's early anti-sodomy statutes. The Buggery Act, as it was known, was drafted and promulgated by Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII, Lord Chancellor, an important architect of the English Reformation in 1533, two years before England's formal schism with Rome. Although the law no doubt accurately reflected the strong popular sentiments against, this, against the vice, the primary motivation for its passage was political, not moral. Its aim was not so much to was not so much the suppression of sodomy as it was the removal of the Catholic Church's jurisdiction in the matter. For in addition to making sodomy a felony punishable by death, the statute permitted the Crown to seize the property and lands of convicted sodomites, including members of the clergy, thus providing still another excuse for Henry VIII's wholesale looting of the great monastic houses of England. It is one of those fascinating footnotes of history that in July of 1540, when the disgraced Cromwell made his way to the scaffolds, he made a public confession of faith in the Catholic Church immediately before his execution. He was accompanied to the place of execution by Walter, the first lord of Hungerford, who was condemned to death for committing sodomy with his manservants, as well as harboring an alleged enemy of the crown. Over the next 100 years, the provisions of the 1533 law would undergo some modifications. For example, in 1548, King Edward VI approved an amendment to the law that excluded 
the confiscation of a convicted felon's property by the Crown. The law was repealed for a short period by England's successor, the Catholic Queen Mary I, as part of a general overhaul of the Protestant legislation she had inherited from Edward. However, Mary's reign was proved short. When Queen Elizabeth I ascended the English throne in 1563, she reinstituted her father's anti-sodomy law in its original form. According to Harrop, throughout the Elizabethan and Jacobian periods, the language of anti-sodomy legislation was expressed in ecclesiastical rather than common law terms. The definition of sodomy not o- included not only carnal knowledge between two men, but also bestiality and unnatural anal coitus between a man and a woman. An important feature of English law was that penetration alone determined the felony. The singular requirement necessary for conviction in sodomy cases was difficult, if not impossible, for non-participants to prove. Also, most same-sex affairs involved an adult and a minor from the lower class, whose testimony, like that of a woman, like that of a woman, was generally held to be unreliable. The issue of class distinction also carried over to cases involving two adult males, since there usually involved a man from the aristocracy and a lower class subordinate and his employer. Further, by bringing the case to the attention of the courts, the accuser automatically implicated himself in a felonious or acts punishable by death, Harrop pointed out, and when all else failed, there was always bribery and the intimidation of witnesses. Although many confirmed sodomites from all classes may have eluded the scaffold or gallows on legal technicalities, it does not follow that they escaped punishment altogether. The public humiliation and ostracism of known sodomites, including their confinement in the stocks, were painful enough reminders of the horror with which the general populace viewed acts of buggery. It is interesting to note that a common, though not necessarily untruthful, ploy used by the defense in buggery cases, especially those involving the aristocracy, was a claim that the defendant was in an intoxicated state when the alleged act occurred. Thus, he could not be held culpable for his actions. These three, three examples of how all the multifaceted contingencies of the law against sodomy actually play themselves out in Renaissance England can be found in the Christopher Marlowe murder trial of the late Elizabethan period, the Castlehaven affair of the post-Jacobian period, and the Molly House trials of the early 18th century. Each case is unique in its own right. Sodomy, spying, murder, and mayhem Catholic and Protestant intriguing in Renaissance England. The Reckoning by Charles Nicole is a masterful recreation and re-examination of the circumstances and events leading up to the trial of Ingram Frizzer for the murder of the famous Elizabethan playwright Christopher Marlowe on May 30, 1593, a murder in which lewd and unnatural passions were rumored to have played a part. In fact, the murder probably had little to do 
little, if anything to do with Marlowe's alleged homosexual proclivities, and everything to do with his secret life as a spy and trigger for the, in the service of the Crown, under the direction of the brilliant spy master, later Sir Francis Walsingham, a Renaissance version of a modern James Bond. Marlowe was recruited into the world of smoke and mirrors in the mid-1580s while studying for holy orders at Corpus Christi College, one of the ancient colleges of the University of Cambridge. He continued his espionage career long after he had forsaken the Anglican Church for a successful career in London as a playwright and dramatist. As reported by Nicol Marlowe, posed as a defector of the Catholic cause in support of Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, against her cousin, against her cousin Queen Elizabeth I. He was said to have played a role in the ill-fated Babington plot, the Babington plot of 1586, to kill the Queen and place Mary on the English throne. Earlier, while still at Cambridge, Marlowe was given an assignment to penetrate influential Catholic circles across the Channel in Brims, home of the English college that trained Catholic seminarians, priests, and missionaries, and spies, recruiters, and infiltrators for their eventual return to England and the nation's conversion back to the one true faith. It remains unclear if he ever actually carried out the mission. In any case, it is these events, rather than Marlowe's rumored homosexual affairs, that drew my particular attention when reading the reckoning for reasons that will soon be made clear. On May 18, 1593, 12 days before his death, Nichols said that Marlowe was called before the Privy Council to answer charges that he was a blasphemer and a practicing homosexual. Information concerning the playwright's anti-religious and hostile views toward scripture had already been obtained under torture from Marlowe's former roommate, Thomas Curl. Another witness against Marlowe said Nickel was a man of the cloth, one Reverend Richard Baines, who said that he had heard Marlowe blaspheme the Lord by saying that St. John the Evangelist was bedfellow to Christ and used him as the sinners of Sodom. Baines argued that the mouth of the so dangerous a member should be stopped. This latter remark was certainly a strange one for a clergyman to utter, but then the Reverend Baines was not your ordinary run-of-the-mill minister. He was, like Marlowe, a longtime spy and intriguer for the Crown, with a most unusual background as an infiltrator and spy against the Catholic Church, and would-be traitors to the Crown. Treachery in the English Seminary The young Baines was one of Walsingham's earliest recruits at Cambridge. The ambitious and enterprising lad began his studies at Christ College, but on cue from his controllers, later transferred to Christ to Caius College in Trinity Street that was home to a large contingent of Catholics. Here he became known in espionage parlance as a sleeper. In 1578, Reigns Baines was activated and sent by Rims, sent to Rims, where he enrolled at a seminary, as a seminary student at the English College, 
where Washington had already established an extensive spy network. As related by Nickel, the spymaster's agents gathered military and political intelligence on the French government and English emigres in Paris, as well as the Catholic religious and lay leaders of the college. They also attempted to interrupt communications between the college and the Vatican, as well as provide the Crown's Secret Service with advance warning of priests entering England, said Nickel. Without Within the college itself, the English agents were instructed to create maximum friction and dissatisfaction among the seminarians and between the seminarians and their superiors, reported Nickel. Life at the college was very austere. It involved solely revolved solely around study and prayer. Its seminarians, drawn from England and the continent, were instantly recognizable by their lack by their traditional black gowns and tricorn hats. There was a great esprit de corps among these young soldiers of Christ, many of whom were willing to risk torture and death should they be captured on English soil. Then, of course, there were men like Baines who were equally dedicated to the cause of the crown. From what we know of his four years at the college, he must he spent every waking moment plotting against the Catholic Church and his and her ministers, especially the college's president, Dr. Jader Cardinal William Ian Allen. While outwardly attending or saying mass and professing his dedication or love and love for Christ and his church. Um, as reported by Nicola Baines, was raised to the subdiaconate and diaconate in March of May of in March and May of fifteen eighty one and was ordained a Catholic priest at, on September fifteen eighty one. He continued his efforts to insinuate himself deeper inside the inner order of senior inner circles of senior officials to discover their secret plan plans and projects and to spread discontent and rebellion against authority among the seminarians, deeds for which Walsingham was said to pay well. Reports some of the techniques cited by Nickel that Baines used to spread dissension among the young men at the seminary included the use of licentious talk to stimulate carnal passions, breeding and contempt and resentment for the strict discipline and rules of the college and hatred and college and against those superiors who enforced the rules and the urging of hatred of things holy, including sacred doctrine. Eventually, Bain's cover was blown, but the college 
council did not immediately act upon the revelation until he approached Allen about returning to England as a missionary in May 1582. After his unmasking, said Nicol, Baines was held at the local jail for almost a year and then transferred back to the college where he made a signed confession in which he stated he had conceived of a plan to kill Allen and did the whole college if he could by poisoning the seminary's water system. After a time, Allen permitted him to return to England where he continued in Washington's service as a man of property and prominent Protestant minister in Lincolnshire, reported Nicol. Baines, as noted earlier, was certainly not alone in his treachery. Another traitor at the college cited by Nicol was John Nichols, a seminarian from Rome who deserted the, to the English government. There was also the case of Gilbert Gifford, who enrolled at the college at Reims in 1577 when he was 16 years old. Although he was thought to be a Catholic youth of exceptional merit, somewhere along the line the English managed to turn him also. Nicol confirmed that Gifford had two primary targets. One was his cousin, Dr. William Gifford, a professor of theology, over whom it is said his cousin had a sinister hold. The second was a young man by the name of John Sabbath, whom Gifford persuaded to pledge a solemn oath to kill Queen Elizabeth. Sabbath later became one of the conspirators in the Barrington plot that was secretly micromanaged by Walsingham. <sighs> Gifford himself returned to England in, 15, in December of 1585, by which time Walsingham was ready to move against the plotters and successfully rid the queen of her rival, Mary Queen of Scots. Gifford, who was born into a poor family, soon became a wealthy man, no doubt a reward for his outstanding services to his prime master and the crown. Naturally, the English college at Reims was not the only Catholic institution infiltrated by English spies working for the crown. Nicholas cited the case of Solomon Aldred, a turned Catholic and tailored for, by trade, who infiltrated the English College Seminary at Rome and later became a spy for Washington, Walsingham in France. Aldred was described in a somewhat contemptuous manner by his controller thusly. He is one in show, he is one in show simple, but later but better acquainted with Romish practices against England than any. He is unnatural and, a, and of little honesty, yet he is very worth the winning. Another young Catholic who spied at the seminary for the crown was Charles Schled, who specialized in producing anti-Catholic characters of prominent figures like Allen. Of all these Renaissance figures from the most from the secret theater of espionage, it is Richard Baines who remains the most intriguing. Baines never turned, he was a never defector from the faith. He had no vocation, 
no calling to the priesthood that could be said to have soured. He was, in fact, never even a Catholic. He simply entered the seminary and got himself ordained a Catholic priest for the sole purpose of spying on the church. The Baines case is very important to this study because it demonstrates in a concrete way that the infiltration of a Catholic, of the Catholic priesthood as an agent provocateur, provocateur is not merely a figment of a deranged and conspiratorial imagination. It actually happened. It happened in 16th century Renaissance England, and it would happen again more than 300 years later as part of Stalin's campaign to infiltrate and undermine the Catholic Church in England and throughout Europe and the Soviet, throughout Europe and the United States. A house in gross disorder, the trial of the Earl of Castlehaven, in her exquisitely crafted bokeh house in gross disorder, Cynthia Harrop presents a detailed history and an analysis of this late Renaissance tragedy that reads like a modern Gothic novel. In 1631, Mervyn Touche, the Earl, second Earl and 12th Baron of Castlehaven, was tried, convicted, and executed, along with two of his accomplices, for sundry sexual crimes that include voyeurism, rape, incest, group sex, adultery, and sodomy. The original charges against the Earl that included rape and sodomy had been brought by his eldest son and heir, James Lord Alder. As Harrop related during the trial, Lord Alder testified that his wife was pressured into having sexual relations with his father's manservants, including Henry Skipworth, while the Earl occasionally looked on and that uh, he, James, feared the loss of his inheritance to Skipworth, a favorite of his sodomite father. Skipworth was also accused of being sexually involved with Lord Audley's stepmother, wrote Harrop. In an unusual judicial setting, the court permitted the Earl's second wife, Anne, to give incriminating evidence against her own husband and his cohort. Harrop reported that the Countess testified that she was restrained by the Earl while he watched her page. Giles Broadway raped her. She also admitted having sexual relations with her son-in-law, John Ankill, Ank Ankill, and confirmed that her husband regularly sodomized his manservants and other household attendants, including his footman. And this is all my reading from the Rite of Sodomy today, and uh, no reading from the Catechism for today. I'll do one tomorrow. And so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.